Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dublina Charcoalbordy. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And in our recent episode about Ma Barker, we talked a fair bit about Alvin Karpis, who many believe was the true mastermind behind the Barker Karpis gang. And we talked about how he was the last of the four original criminals to wear the title Public Enemy Number One to be caught. So with this fun fact, I realized that we had covered three of those original four over the past couple of years, Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, and Carpus. And that, of course, left only one, the subject of this podcast, Pretty Boy Floyd. We've done a series and not even realized it. So Floyd wasn't as famous as some of those other gangsters during his lifetime, and he was often overshadowed by what was going on with Dillinger and some of the others, too. But he's still a really interesting character, if only for this sort of Robin Hood-like reputation that he earned along the way, which might remind a few of you guys of the Australian bushrangers that we've covered in the past. They also had these steal-from-the-rich-give-to-the-poor kind of reputations about them. But even though Floyd wasn't as well-known during his lifetime, he did become a lot more famous toward the end of his life and after his lifetime for his supposed involvement in one of the most pivotal crimes in the 1930s, at least as far as the FBI is concerned, and that was the Kansas City Massacre. It was a crime that resulted in the deaths of several men, mostly peace officers, such as policemen and FBI, and one criminal, Frank Nash. According to Brian Burroughs' book, Public Enemies, America's Greatest Crime Wave and the Birth of the FBI, it was, quote, at the time, the second deadliest murder of law enforcement officers in American history. And it officially kicked off J. Edgar Hoover's War on Crime, which we've talked about quite a bit. But how much did Pretty Boy Floyd actually have to do with it? And that's a question that people have been asking since this massacre happened. And it's part of what we're going to take a look into today. Yeah, but first, of course, as always, we want to take a look at how Floyd got his start in crime. Because at first, he seemed to be kind of an okay kid. At least he wasn't as bad as the Barker boys were at a very early age. So Floyd was born Charles Arthur Floyd on February 3rd, 1904 in Bartow County, Georgia, where he helped pick cotton as a boy and helped earn money for his family. I always think of Bartow County as where our thunderstorms come from, from the <laughs> from the weather <laughs> maps. But uh, Floyd was one of six surviving kids of Walter Lee and Mamie Floyd. And in 1911, his parents decided to get out of Bartow County and try their luck out west. They moved out to Cookson Hills outside of Hanson, Oklahoma, where his father worked as a tenant farmer and probably also a bootlegger, which in retrospect uh, might not have helped his son stay out of trouble. So early on, Floyd worked in the fields with the rest of his family, but according to the Oklahoma Historical Society, he was a bright and somewhat mischievous kid, and so he got bored with farm work pretty quickly. He liked to escape from his um, more boring duties in stories of outlaws like Jesse James, which I feel is kind of a reoccurring theme we see with like a lot Ma of these. Barker. Yeah, exactly. Like Ma Barker, like so many of the outlaws that we cover. But by the time he was in his teens, Floyd had learned to make moonshine and he'd earned his first nickname, which was Chalk, because he really liked to kind of homebrew beer known as Choctaw. He got into a few scrapes with the law in his teen years, but nothing too serious, though he did go on the road as a hired hand for a little while when he was 16, and he got involved in some bootlegging and other illegal activities before he returned to Oklahoma again. 
He was a good-looking kid, too. He was about six foot two. He was really popular with women, though he settled down in 1924 when he married Ruby Hardgraves, who was the daughter of a tenant farmer, and they had one son together. So Floyd really seemed to care a lot about his new wife, his little son, but it didn't take long again for him to get tired of farm life, another recurring theme with a lot of these a lot of these folks. And by 1925, he partnered up with John Hildebrand, who was more seasoned in the criminal lifestyle than Floyd was. And together they went off to Missouri, where according to Mike Mayo's book, American Murder, they pulled off a few small time robberies. But that September, though, Floyd decided to set his his sights a little bit higher and took part in a payroll robbery at Kroger's food store, which brought in $11,929. And after that, you know, feeling pretty pretty uh, comfortable suddenly. He, yeah, it was big time now. He bought a flashy new car. He went off to Arkansas to celebrate with his wife, but it didn't take long for the cops to track him down. And by that November, he had been sentenced to five years in the Missouri State Penitentiary. His wife, Ruby, divorced him while he was locked up in January of 1929 and got full custody of their son. I think she cited neglect for the reason behind the divorce. But Floyd was released in prison not too long after that, actually, March of 1929. And like a lot of criminals we've discussed, he left this period of incarceration much better prepared for a life of crime than when he entered it. He'd picked up some tips while he was locked up, and he made some friends in there, including the bank robber Red Lovett, who was his first partner in crime when he was released. In his book, Burrow actually says that Floyd tried to, quote, go straight for a while after he was released from prison, but that the police hounded him so much, he felt persecuted and decided to jump back into the game. Whether or not that happened, we do know for sure that he did get back into crime. He hooked up with Red and other gangsters in Kansas City. And this is also where he learned to use a Tommy gun, yet another recurring theme (laughs) in a lot of these gangster episodes. But according According to Encyclopedia Britannica, the Tommy gun really became his professional trademark. And he also started up a new relationship, this time with his future girlfriend, Juanita Baird, who was a prostitute and was married at the time, too. So soon enough, with Tommy gun in tow, he uh, pulled off several bank robberies in Ohio. He worked with various accomplices. But again, it wasn't long before he got caught, this time in Akron, after a shootout with the police. This time, he got a heavier sentence, too. Yeah, he was sentenced to 15 years in prison, but while he was being transported to the Ohio Penitentiary by train, he busted out of a bathroom window and jumped out, still shackled, with the train still moving. Yikes. So Determined. After this, yeah, I mean, determined and pretty impressive. (laughs) Yeah, suicidal, true, too. But to (laughs) some people, this probably seemed pretty impressive, right? So after this, Floyd's name began to be better known, of course, but he was also a fugitive. So he was pretty much on the run from this point on. He didn't exactly lay low because of that, though. He robbed several banks throughout the Midwest and even murdered a few people along the way. So adding some more 
crime, some more offenses to his rap sheet, including he killed a police officer in Bowling Green, Kentucky. That was one of his murders that's credited to him. And also during this time, somewhere along the way, he picked up that nickname Pretty Boy, which he apparently did not like. He preferred chalk. And according to an article by Mary Jean Porter in the Pueblo Chieftain, there's some debate over where the moniker Pretty Boy really came from. So some possibilities, it could have been from a Kansas City madam. I really like this possibility, who apparently said, quote, I'll take you from myself, pretty boy. Other people claim that he was called Pretty Boy behind his back. That would partly explain why he didn't really like the nickname. Uh, but he was called this because he used to preen in front of mirrors and because he was such a ladies' man. So cute nicknames aside, as well-known as he was, Floyd nearly got caught by police in 1931. And after that, he decided to return to Oklahoma, where he picked up other accomplices and started robbing local banks. And this is where that Robin Hood, those Robin Hood stories about him really started to pop up. It's said that Floyd would tear up mortgage papers during his bank robbery. So this is very reminiscent of the Ned Kelly story mm-hmm. um, that we, we mentioned Bush Rangers in the beginning of the podcast. So the working class loved him because he was basically liberating them from their obligation to these institutions. And Mayo writes that he'd also give some stolen money to the poor people that he met. This was a smart business move, too, though. It wasn't just generosity, because according to Encyclopedia Britannica, this um, giving to the poorer folks made locals loyal enough to him that they could actually protect him, or they would protect him, making it a lot harder for law enforcement to get a hold of him. So he became known in Oklahoma as the Robin Hood of Cookson Hills. He became known as the Phantom of the Ozarks. Really, these um, mythological sort of names for him, a lot different from Pretty Boy with a Tommy gun robbing bank. So he was kind of a folk hero at that point, in a way. At first, this probably seemed like a pretty sweet setup for him, but gradually Floyd's fame began to grow, especially after he survived a couple of shootouts with police and he was implicated in the ambush and killing of six law enforcement officers in early 1932, which incidentally did not make him very popular with uh, the general public. According to Burroughs' book, Floyd actually didn't have anything to do with that 1932 ambush, though. He was actually getting tired of life on the run and by 1933 had stopped robbing banks, choosing instead to hide out with his relatives. If he was hoping for some relaxing time with relatives, though, that didn't happen because several of his relatives started being hassled and arrested. And so Floyd decided to skip town for a bit and headed to Kansas City with another criminal named Adam Riquette whose less experienced gang Floyd had been mentoring, in a sense, tutoring. That was sort of his retirement plan. He was like, well, I won't rob banks anymore, but I'll kind of supervise you guys and help you out. But they weren't very good at it. Kind of take on an Adam Worth sort of role almost. Kind of. Not quite as successfully, though. Right. The problem was... If Floyd truly wanted to lay low, that is, if we're going with that theory, his arrival in Kansas City was pretty ill-timed to the arrival of another well-known and wanted gangster, Frank Jelly Nash. Nash was another career criminal. We mentioned him in the Barker episode, you may remember, as an accomplice in at least one of their crimes. And he'd robbed stagecoaches, committed murder, probably worked with Al Capone at some point. 
And Nash had gone to prison a couple of times and been pardoned, but when he was sentenced to 25 years in Leavenworth in 1924, he later escaped in 1930, and the FBI had been searching for him intensely for quite some time. Agents finally caught up with Nash in Hot Springs, Arkansas on June 16th, 1933. And Hot Springs was another kind of hotbed for criminals, much like St. Paul, Minnesota, which we mentioned in the Barker episode again. Two agents and a police chief from Oklahoma who had previous experience with Nash and could recognize him on site arrested Nash and took him to Fort Smith. And it was kind of a perilous journey because the Hot Springs Police Department was corrupt. Again, the criminals kind of ran the city and they had infiltrated the police department. So they were the the agents who had Nash. Nash. Exactly. They were actually afraid that they wouldn't make it out of the state without getting shot. So they came up with this very carefully thought out plan to transport Nash to Kansas City and and not get shot in the process. And because it was risky to wait in Kansas City for a connecting train, because Kansas City, again, was also basically run by criminals, they were planning to meet up with two more agents in town and a police escort that would drive them the rest of the way to Leavenworth. But when they got to Union Station in Kansas City the morning of June 17th, someone was waiting for them there. And as the agents and the cops and Nash were all getting into their cars, they heard somebody shout, up, up, get your hands up. And then somebody said, let them have it. Suddenly they were under heavy machine gun fire. And when all of it was over, there were three cops, one FBI agent and Nash all dead. Uh, So, As we mentioned earlier, this incident really kicked off the war on crime, and Hoover immediately launched an investigation. He said, quote, whoever did this must be exterminated, and they must be exterminated by us. But another immediate result of the crime is that the FBI ended its official ban on weapons. It's hard to believe that there ever was one, right? Yeah, I didn't know that before researching this, but before this time, agents weren't really supposed to carry guns. Afterward, though, they had machine guns on hand at their disposal to help them hunt down the assassins of the massacre. So where does Floyd come into all of this? Because we've kind of gotten away from him for a couple of minutes, and you're probably thinking, well, obviously he must have been one of the gunmen. After all, he did arrive in Kansas City the night before, June 16th, and people were aware that he was in town because of a run-in that he'd had with the law a couple days earlier elsewhere in Missouri. So Floyd did make it on the suspect list right away. But according to Burrow, he wasn't considered a serious suspect at first because out of the dozens of witnesses who were interviewed right after the massacre, only one woman identified him as one of the gunmen. And the agents were having a hard time really connecting him to others that they knew were sort of involved in the situation. And they didn't have too many concrete details anyway. The one person that they determined was definitely involved was the ex-sheriff turned criminal named Vern Miller. But at first they thought his two accomplices were two of the seven prisoners who Nash had helped to bust out of prison before. And I think here it's worth talking about like what exactly went down with this Nash FBI police shootout. Was it some kind of rescue attempt? And Nash just wound up dead, too? Or was it something else? Well, it's unclear. And it's interesting because it is murky also. The the purpose behind the shooting is murky. And the people who were involved 
is also a situation that we're still questioning today or some people still question today. I mean, there are people, you know, the FBI, for example, definitely thinks it was a rescue attempt. And it seems to have definitely started out that way. But, you know, there are others now who say, well, these were experienced gangsters. And if it was really a rescue attempt, then why did they kill Nash, too? With just random machine gun fire, it doesn't seem like the most precise way to go about saving your buddy. Yeah, but it doesn't really seem like the most precise way, as you pointed out before, too, to just kill someone either, because why would they have killed FBI agents in the process gonna, knowing that the heat would have been yeah, on Yeah, you're going to bring down a whole lot of heat if you get in that deep by... Um, yeah, killing police officers and an FBI agent. But right. So a lot of uncertainty there. What really was going on. But Floyd himself always denied that he had anything to do with this shooting. But the heat was still on him because, as you said, you know, he was known to have been in town. So he went to hide out in Buffalo, New York for a little bit. Eventually, though, he and Ricchetti were accused of being gunmen in the massacre. And Floyd made his way on up to the public enemies list. That's how he got there. On October 22nd, 1934, Floyd and Ricchetti were making their way back toward Oklahoma. Floyd was headed home again with Juanita and her sister when Floyd ran the car off the road in Ohio. The women went to get the car fixed, and in the meantime, the men were spotted and they were recognized. So law enforcement officials obviously got on this right away, and Ricchetti was captured, but Floyd managed to escape into the woods, and he made it to a farm. At this point, though, the manhunt was officially on, and it was actually led by G-man Melvin Purvis, whom we've discussed before in previous gangster episodes. He happened to be in Ohio at the time. And agents eventually did catch up with Floyd, too, while he was trying to get a ride with a farmer. And when he saw them, he jumped out of the car, maybe kind of trying to recreate his train experience, jumped out of the car, tried to escape into the woods on foot, but they shot at him and he was taken down. And as the agents approached him, he said, quote, I'm done for. You've hit me twice. And they tried to question him while he was dying. And he did admit he was pretty boy Floyd, but he refused to admit involvement in the massacre. So there you have it right up into the end, Floyd maintaining his innocence with the massacre. On their website, the FBI calls his death, quote, another key victory in the war against the gangsters. Uh, incidentally, Ricchetti later got the death sentence. He was executed. Um, but what's interesting, though, is because while the FBI seems to accept without question that Floyd was a gunman in the massacre, at least according to the articles about the incident on their website, plenty of other sources, including Burroughs and Mayo's book, Porter's article, even Floyd's Encyclopedia Britannica entry seemed to be kind of doubtful, as his deathbed words might, not deathbed, but death field words <laughs> might indicate. Or at least they're not as definitive about it, about resolving the question. The Oklahoma Historical Society, though, does say definitively that newer evidence shows that Floyd definitely wasn't involved in this crime. So it's interesting just to see how different people handle it. One definitely paints him as guilty and others say eh, it's a little Not so much. murkier. Well, and another fun thing, uh, looking at some of these gangster episodes, seeing how the FBI reflects on these cases with uh, Ma Barker, it was a little bit of a surprise to me that they were saying 
yeah, she might not have really done any of these crimes. Whereas this one, it's still pretty firm. Yes, Floyd participated in this massacre. Yeah, so to them it's case closed, to others it's not so much. But even the FBI points out that after his death, the legend of pretty boy Floyd and even his Robin Hood reputation continued to flourish. Uh, You could see references to this effect pop up kind of all over the place. For example, Grapes of Wrath. Uh, I didn't remember this, but he's mentioned in there as a tragic figure who was kind of forced into his fate by the economic circumstances surrounding him. And uh, one thing that's mentioned a lot is folk singer Woody Guthrie famously wrote a ballad about him, and it ends like this. It goes... Yes, as through this world I've wandered, I've seen lots of funny men. Some will rob you with a six gun and some with a fountain pen. And as through your life you travel, yes, as through your life you roam, you won't never see an outlaw drive a family from their home. Robin Hood indeed brings to mind tearing up the mortgage uh, papers and uh, giving some of the, the spoils to people he encountered. I think it's so interesting with these gangsters how there are different pictures of them, whether they're murdering people, something most folks can agree is not a nice thing to do, or possibly giving back a little bit. There are other ways to be charitable, of course. (laughs) Yeah, it just seems like these two images of Floyd are so far apart. You know, the victim who wanted to help people, wanted to get out of crime, maybe even. Yeah, didn't want to be a gangster anymore, didn't want to rob banks. And then there's the other side, the ruthless gangster who was violent, and yes, he did kill people, maybe 10, maybe more. And, you know, didn't have any remorse for these things that he did. So, you know, as we usually say, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, but we can speculate about that. And that's kind of fun. So in the meantime, I think we could talk about some listener mail, too. Yeah. We have a postcard here from Lister Karen, and you know how we love postcards, so we wanted to share it. They always pick up in the summer, too. Everybody starts traveling. They do. We, we get, get a to lot. see where y'all go. And it's fun, because we have new decorations for our cubes. So Karen says, I just completed the Camino de Santiago, where I had been carefully saving your podcast to listen to along the way. The walk was both a challenging journey, both physically and spiritually, and I appreciate your company along the way. She also says the Camino would be, of course, an interesting topic. It's thousands of years old and has every kind of adventure you can think of. So, And that's a suggestion we've received before, as well as other famous walks and pilgrimages Mm -hmm. and, I don't know, maybe a list or something on some of those. I was just about to say. Maybe a little list is in order. So if you have any suggestions for us for any walks that you might like to see included on that list or other adventures that you'd like us to cover, please write us. We're at HistoryPodcast at Discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook and we're on Twitter at Missing History. And if you want to learn a little bit more about other folks like Pretty Boy, we do have an article or an image gallery, rather, called Public Enemies Gallery. And you can search for that on our homepage at www.HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.